All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. And uh, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7 as we jump back into our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And uh, we'll be looking at chapter 7, 1 through 10. Kids, the word of the day is priest. And if you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 1279. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, From their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do thank you and praise you for your word and for the way you have revealed yourself to us through your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. And we do ask that you now would open our eyes to what is revealed about the Son of God in this passage, that we might grow to know him more and to love him more deeply and to depend on him more fervently. We do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us and through us that we might grow not only in our knowledge of our King, but in holiness like Him. That we might be a blessing to our neighbors and to the nations as we continue to make disciples of our neighbors and the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are times when certain things are happening in our country or in the world where I think it's important for church leaders to be very clear about certain things. And given some of the events that took place this past week without going into detail on any of them or the one in particular, um, I think it's good for you and for us uh, as a church body to... Remember 
that uh, we are Christians who uh, come under the word of God. We submit to the word of God as true. And the word of God is crystal clear that uh, racism is wrong and wicked and sinful and to be repented of. And you need to hear me say that, and I need to say that to you, and we need to remember that, especially when uh, we see wickedness in our midst. You know, the Bible makes very clear that we're all made, all of us, every human being, every human being is made in the image of God and is therefore of inestimable value and dignity. And so it is so important that we who call ourselves Christians uh, reject any acts of racism or speak of racism uh, and that we remain resolute uh, to what God has taught us in his word, that all people are made in the image of God and therefore of value and dignity. Now, where does that even come from? Where does, why is there racism or why are there some groups who are against others, whether it's different ethnicities or different religions or different, you name it. There's so much animosity from certain groups towards other groups or this group towards that group or one group towards another. Where's it come from? Um, a theologian from uh, many decades past um, once said this, that man is not at peace with his fellow man because he's not at peace with himself. And he's not at peace with himself because he's not at peace with God. That's where that comes from. Man is not at peace with his fellow man because he's not at peace with himself. We're not at peace with ourselves unless we are at peace with God. So basically racism uh, is an outworking of our own lack of peace with God. And it's not just racism. It's so much of what we deal with. So much of the sadness and the misery and the sin that's committed in the world is done so out of this recognition that people have, whether they want to name it or not, they feel this lack of peace. We feel the fact that we're not at peace with God. And a lot of times that causes us to want to push others down so I can maybe feel like I'm better and maybe that will give me peace. But it won't. And until we actually are at peace with God and know it and believe it, then we're actually, uh, we remain part of the problem. But once we believe that we are really at peace with God, the almighty God and creator of all things, then things change. Then we can be part of the solution. That's why I think it's interesting in God's timing that we're, we're now jumping back into our long study of the book of Hebrews. And uh, we do so by picking up with talking about Melchizedek. Okay. We're going to be talking about Melchizedek today, who's this interesting sort of enigmatic uh, Old Testament figure who then the author of Hebrews is talking about this morning. And what's so powerful and relevant right now is that as we understand what Melchizedek shows us about Jesus, it helps highlight and, and deepen our understanding of the way that we get to be at peace with God. And so our focus this morning will be on the fact that Jesus is the greater Melchizedek who gives us righteousness and therefore peace through faith. Okay. 
Jesus is the greater Melchizedek who gives us righteousness and peace through faith. So that's what we're going to see as we understand this, this guy, Melchizedek. Um, but before we do that, I want to jump a little, sort of go, go a little back because it's been a while since we've been in the book of Hebrews. So we started it back in January and we did 16 sermons on the book of Hebrews before we took a break for the summer and the Psalms. So if you want to go get caught up, it's only about eight hours of listening. Okay. Have at it. It's online. Um, so we took our break and so I want to, uh, make sure that we're not going to go back through everything, but I want to bring out two big themes in the book of Hebrews that will help us understand Melchizedek who helps us understand Christ. Okay. So two big themes. One, a big theme in the book of Hebrews is that the ultimate revelation of who God is to the world is found in the person and work of Jesus. Okay, so the, the author of Hebrews has talked about how God revealed himself through angels and through prophets and through leaders like Moses and Joshua, through the Old Testament, Levitical priesthood and all these things. But all of that, while true, is not as full of a revelation of who God is as we have in the person and work of his son. Okay, that's the reason why the sermon series is titled By His Son. In these last days, God has spoken to us. He has revealed himself to us by his son. Okay, so that's the one uh, the biggest theme of the book of Hebrews, that in Christ, God has revealed himself most fully to us. So if we know Jesus, then we know God, right? The author says that he is the radiant. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. So we know God through knowing uh, Jesus. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the author has made it very clear that, therefore, since God has revealed himself most fully in the person of Christ... And in the work of Christ, then if we turn away from Christ, we're turning away from God. To reject Christ is to reject God, and it's to reject his grace and to forfeit peace with God. Now, why is he making these really big points? Well, remember that this book was written to some Christians who were going through some difficult things. Uh, They'd seen some suffering maybe even some persecution. They're worried about what was ahead. And what we've seen as we've looked through the chapters of Hebrews is there's, there's this repeated call to the people to hold fast. Hang on. Don't turn away from Jesus. Keep pressing forward through faith in him. And so he's writing to people who are tempted to turn away. But then they would lose peace with God. They wouldn't have peace with God because that only comes through Jesus, as we'll see as we understand Melchizedek and how he helps us understand Jesus. So those are the kind of that should help us kind of get get back on track here. And uh, so we've got this big truth that God has revealed himself most fully in Christ to reject Christ would be to reject God and his grace and not be at peace with him. So no matter what we're going through, we want to press deeper into our relationship with Jesus, not turn away from it. Okay. So now let's talk about Melchizedek. Who is, I want to talk about this. I want to do these things. We'll talk about who is Melchizedek, why is he so important, and what does he show us about Jesus, particularly about how we are at peace with God. Okay. Who is Melchizedek, why is he so important, and what does he show us about Jesus. So look at verses 1 and 2. And can we just, for one second, um, Let's just notice something. How great is his name? 
Melchizedek. And why are there not Christian kids named Melchizedek today? Why aren't we like, hey, Melchizedek, get off the monkey bars. You're going to fall and get hurt. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just saying, if you get pregnant, it's a boy. We can call him Kiz. Okay, but who is he? Who is he? Um, Verse 1 and 2. Here's what you want to see. Melchizedek, very simple, almost seemingly insignificant. He is, uh, he's a king and a priest who comes to Abraham with bread and wine and pronounces this beautiful blessing over him right after God had delivered Abraham from his enemies. And Abraham just forks over this large portion of his possessions. Look at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Now here's what he's doing. He is um, reminding these Hebrew Christians of something they probably should remember about the Old Testament, this brief little appearance of this priest king guy named Melchizedek, which is back in Genesis 14. You can turn there if you want, or you can look, I'll have it on the screens. This is it. Uh, As far as who is Melchizedek, in the Old Testament, here it is, Genesis 14, uh, 17 through 20. This is all we get, other than something in the Psalms, which we'll talk about next week. But this is what the author is referring to, this moment. Okay, here's what has happened. Abraham, who's the patriarch of the faith, right? He had gone to battle to rescue his ne- his nephew, who he liked a lot. Bible nerd joke. Did you get it? Well done. Okay, he went to rescue his nephew, and he wins this battle, and then he and he comes, and then this happens. Okay, 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and here he is. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. And he said, blessed be Abram. This is before God changed Abram's name to Abraham. Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Okay. Now that's seemingly an insignificant moment, right? But what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's showing us, as he's showing his audience in the first century, no, this was a monster moment in redemptive history. So just let that be something that we can remember uh, uh, as we're reading through the Old Testament. There's a lot of things that may seem insignificant, but technically... Once we realize how they show us more about Jesus, we realize that everything matters in the Old Testament. All of God's word is God-breathed and profitable. Okay, so that's who he is. That's all, that's all we get. He's a king and he's a priest. And he came with bread and wine and he blessed Abraham. Now, why is he so important? Uh, let's talk about that. Look at verse 3. Here's where it gets interesting. Okay, verse 3. Um, and here's what we want to recognize. Melchizedek's appearance in Genesis was intentionally designed by God who, through the Holy Spirit, inspired Moses to write about him in a way that it would foreshadow the priestly ministry of Christ. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit 
empowered Moses to describe this Melchizedek in such a way that he, his life, what's recorded about him, this moment, would foreshadow, point forward to the priestly ministry of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. It says, he's talking about Melchizedek here. Here's what he says. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Now, you just read that and you're like, whoa, hold up. Kids, you don't have a mom? You don't have a dad? You didn't have a beginning or an end? What's that all about? Okay, so the key is in that word resembling. Look again. Um, here's what we're, we're, you need to recognize, or what I think is true, or what I think this is saying. What is literally, literarily, what is literarily true of Melchizedek is literally true of the Son of God. Okay? So the way Moses has written about him was intentionally designed to foreshadow what Jesus would be like. Now, he was, Melchizedek's real person. This thing, he, this thing really happened. But Moses intentionally wrote about him in such a way that it would point forward to Christ as our true and great high priest. And the, the key is that word resembling. Notice how he says he's resembling the Son of God. Now, that's an intentional word, meaning something is done with intention, and it literally means likened to or made like. In other words, Moses uh, wrote about him in a way that he would point us to the Son of God. Okay, and if you want to, here's another way to think about that. Uh, that word resembling is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1, 23, when he's talking about people making idols, resembling people or birds or creeping things or animals. Okay, so in, in the same way that the pagan nations would make idols that resemble something else, they're making something, they're intentionally designing it so it looks like something else, right? That's the same word here. So the author of Hebrews is showing us that when Moses was writing about Melchizedek, he wasn't trying to say that Melchizedek's eternal, but he was writing about him in such a way so that when we realize that his entire existence was to point forward to the priesthood of Christ, we would realize that what's really happening is he was foreshadowing the fact that Christ would be this eternal priest, distinguishing him from the Levitical priests. Okay? Christ is a, is a greater priest. He's our ultimate priest. Okay, So that's foreshadowing and why does he do that? Well, for this, for, so that the author of Hebrews right now in this moment with the Christians at that time and you and I, so that we can look back at how the plan had always been that Jesus would come, that the Son of God would come. That had always been the plan. And the foreshadowing that we see throughout the Old Testament helps us to realize it's always been moving forward to God's ultimate revelation of himself in the person of Jesus. So authors do that. Writers do that. They foreshadow. And it, and it shows you that the whole time they were heading towards the climax or the end, right? Think about Romeo and Juliet. Okay? Romeo and Juliet is a, a play. And if you, I'm going to, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you how it ends. Okay? But Shakespeare wrote it in 1529. So get on it. If you haven't seen it, it's your fault. Or not seen it, but you haven't read it. It's your fault. Um, what happens? Uh, in the end, Romeo and Juliet die. Okay, sorry. It's true. They die young. Okay. But in Act 2, this is what Romeo says. 
Life were better ended by their hate than death prolonged wanting of thy love. See it? Now, here's what he's saying. Here's what he said. Basically, in Act 2, Romeo says to Juliet, I would rather love you and die young than not love you and live a long time. That's the end of the play. They love each other and die young. And what, what does that do for the story? The end of the story, and then you go back and you realize when you read it again or you see the play again, you start to realize, oh, Shakespeare was on his way to something. He was building to that. He knew it the whole time, and he planted these little sign markers, signposts, so that we could see that it was always moving to that end, right? So our God loves us so much that all through the scriptures, he has placed these little sign points all the time, all the different figures and peoples and things that we would say theologically are types of Christ or more in the way we would normally talk these things, foreshadow Christ proves. It shows to us that all through the Old Testament, all through redemptive history, there's these people or places or things that are pointing to him. He is where things were always going, okay? Which is why John Owen says this, we shall not benefit from reading the Old Testament unless we look for and meditate on the glory of Christ in its pages. What a, what a sweet quote, right? We shall not benefit from reading the Old Testament unless we look for and meditate on the glory of Christ in his pages. So right now, the author of Hebrews is getting those Hebrew Christians who are tempted to give up on their faith and go back to Old Testament Judaism. He's, he's reminding them, no, let's look back. Look, at, look in the Old Testament, he's saying. Look at that guy Melchizedek. Because he was designed to help us understand some things about Jesus. Okay, So who, who was Melchizedek? He was this priest king. Um, who, uh, why is he so important? Because he's, he's he foreshadows things that we need to understand about the Son of God. And what is it that he shows us then about Jesus? Third, what is it that Melchizedek shows us about Christ? And really what, uh, we're going to answer that question over the next three weeks. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, you get to go home in between, but... Um, <laughs> Melchizedek is is a really big figure, and so he takes a whole chapter. He's mentioned him in chapter 5, and he mentioned him in chapter 6. In chapter 7, he's like, okay, I've got to talk about this guy. That's basically what's happened. And so we're going to flesh this out over the next few weeks. However, right now, I want you to notice verse 4, and he, his emphasis is on the greatness of Melchizedek. Okay, He says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, Gave a tenth. And so really what we want to see here is what Melchizedek, one of the things that Melchizedek shows us about Jesus is his ultimate greatness. The greatness of Melchizedek points forward to the greatness of Christ, the even greater greatness of the Son of God who leads to our peace when we trust in him. So let's take a look. Let's, let's break this down. So some confusing stuff in here. Let's see what we can do. Look at verse 4 again. Now, again, he's emphasizing the greatness of Melchizedek. He says, verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, through these, though these are also descended from Abraham. Here's what he's starting to do here. He's starting, he's showing that Abraham, or sorry, Melchizedek is exceedingly great, that he's greater than Abraham. And in their minds now, the you know formerly Jewish Christians at this time, they're thinking Abraham is the tops, like he's the, he's the hero of the Old Testament in their mind. 
And so he's saying, now, this Melchizedek is greater, and how do you see it? You see it in a way that, okay, in the Old Testament, the Levitical priests, by command, were told to collect tithes from the people. But in this case, Abraham didn't have a commandment. He just sees Melchizedek, and he sees the bread and the wine, and he hears the blessing, and he just automatically just throws a tenth at him. Almost just uncontrollably. Okay? Because he just recognizes this, the greatness of this Melchizedek. So now the Hebrew Christians are starting to think, oh, wait a second, Abraham is the greatest of the great, and, and he, he thought this Melchizedek was super great? Yes. Okay, so then look at verse 6. Uh, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute, verse 7, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So now here, once again, he's, start, he's making these connections and these comparisons and showing there's a difference between the priesthood of Melchizedek and Christ and the Levitical priests. And what he's showing here is that, again, the greatness of Abraham is not only in the fact that Abraham gave a tithe, but also in the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Because they all knew and they all understood that the inferior is the one who's blessed by the superior, which once again says Melchizedek is the greatest, not Abraham. Okay, then it's very interesting in verse 8. Let's look at that. Um, And here's ultimately what he's doing. He's now going to show that the Levitical priesthood basically comes from Abraham. And he wants us to see that the priest that came to Abraham is superior to the ones that came from him. Does that make sense? Uh, Look at verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's the Levitical priests. But in the other case, by one of whom is testified that he lives. Okay, so Melchizedek is written about in such a way that it seems he's still alive, even though that's really pointing us to Christ. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, okay, the headwaters of the Levitical priests, uh, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor, when Melchizedek met him. So now he's taking the entire Levitical priesthood, which, by the way, these Hebrew Christians are tempted to go back to. They're tempted to go back to the priesthood and the sacrifices for blessing and for their relationship with God. Probably because they're under pressure and they're thinking, I want to do something to get to peace. And what he's saying is that all of that basically came from Abraham. And here is Melchizedek, who is even greater than Abraham. In other words, what he's emphasizing here is there's no one, there's no thing greater than Melchizedek, which points us to the the truth of the matter, that it's ultimately Jesus who is the greatest. There's no one greater than Jesus. There's nothing greater than Jesus. Only the Son of God can actually reconcile us to God not the sacrificial system. In fact, all that stuff is inferior. Okay? God used it, but it was always inferior. The ultimate place in which or way in which people would be reconciled to God would not be through such things as the sacrificial system that all pointed to the true way people are reconciled to God, and that is through faith in Christ, who's greater than Melchizedek. So Abraham's greater than the priesthood, and, and Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, and Christ is greater than Melchizedek. Okay. Now, why is that so important? Um, 
Again, what he's doing, most of us are probably not formerly Jewish Christians. Well, we're probably not, we're formerly, we're not, probably not formerly Jewish and now Christians is a better way to say that. But this is, it's not like his proving the superiority of Christ is not relevant to you and I. It is. It absolutely is. Because you and I have a tendency to look to other things, things that are inferior to Christ to get to a place of peace. And we keep chasing after things that we think will bring us peace, but they don't, so we try something else, and it doesn't, so we keep after it. But it is only Christ, the way throughout all history, mankind is able to be reconciled to God, to actually have peace. And let's go back to his name. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. I love this. Okay. He emphasizes these things that he doesn't seem to need to, but he does. And so let's see what he emphasizes. Look again at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Remember, these things are going to point to Jesus. They're going to help us understand Jesus. So priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Remember, he doesn't mention it in Hebrews, but remember how he, what he did when he blessed him. He gave him bread and wine. Sound familiar? Okay. Priest of God Most High. And then look at the last sentence there of, of verse 2. He's emphasizing something. Melchizedek is, first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, why did he clarify that? Why does he clarify? Why does he tell us what Melchizedek's name means? And that Salem means peace. And so to say he was the king of Salem is to say he was the king of peace. Salem from the word shalom, which means peace. You might also recognize the word, Hebrew word, Jeru, means city of, Jerusalem. Okay. So here's this priest of God Most High. And there's, he, he's, he's, his name means king of righteousness. And he is the king of peace. That's all specifically designed to show us who Christ is, who the Son of God is. He was written about this, written in this way, written about in this way to resemble the Son of God because Jesus is the ultimate priest of the Most High God. He is the ultimate king of righteousness. He is the ultimate king of peace. It is only through him that he can, we can be reconciled to God. It is only through him that we can have righteousness. It's only through him that we can have peace. So this is another call to them and to us, don't go to anything else. Go, don't go to the Old Testament sacrificial system where you and I might be tempted to go through other things. Our work, different sins, or who knows what. We might be able tempted to go to any number of things to get to a place of peace or to find peace, but it would all be inferior because it's only through Jesus because he's the ultimate priest and he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. Let me put it this way. When, when we are not at peace, there's an there's a integral connection between peace and righteousness or peace and things being right. So when something isn't right, that's why we're not at peace. So if, something, if we're not at peace, it means something's not right. And if we want to be at peace, it's got to be made right. You follow? Okay. Um, some of you know, because of Facebook, um, that when we were in Minnesota on vacation, uh, I hit a deer. Technically, it, it hit me. Deer. <laughs> I'm running in a van. Should I stop? No. Just run right in the side of it. Um, so the deer hit me, uh, our van, and we were fine. 
Um, and so in, immediately I, I wanted to get out and see the damage. Uh, my door wouldn't open, so I had to go out my window. My kids loved that. What are you doing, Daddy? Um, so I get out, and I see this massive dent in the side of our van, and the headlight is smashed out. And um, let's just say I'm not at peace. Okay? I'm not at peace. Um, I'm not at peace because there's damage to the van. And I also know that there's only one way that this van will be repaired, restored. And that's, it's going to cost money. A payment is going to be needed to be made. Partially by our insurance company and some by me. So I'm not at peace because there's damage to the van. And I know that it can be repaired, but it's going to cost. Now, think about this. Here's what is wrong with the entire world and wrong with each and every one of us except by the grace of God. Sin, the fall of mankind, damaged the relationship between God and man. Damaged. Okay. Because sin is wicked and God is just, he must punish sin. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we know that deep down. Paul makes that clear in Romans 1. We all know deep down that we're not right in God's sight. We're all sinners. All of us. And so that recognition that there's damage, that I'm not right with God, is what robs us of our peace. We can't be at peace because we know there's damage. And it hurts and it scares us and it bothers us. And so we try any number of things. And we also think there's going to have to be a payment. If I'm going to... If this damage between God and me is going to be repaired, there's going to have to be a payment. And so a lot of people try to uh, make things right through... A religious activity, they try to be really good or they try to follow all the rules and, and they think that this will, this will repair the damage, this will repair the damage, but it doesn't. And they know it. And so there's still no peace. And that's why a lot of religious people can still be total not nice people. Uh, maybe some people try to deal with the damage that's robbing them of their peace by irreligion or just throw... You know, rules out the window. We talked about that a little bit last week. The, the studies are in. Uh, even though truth has been relativized in our country, the guilt remains. So people can't get away from it by trying to reject the fact that they're damaged and that their relationship with God is damaged through sin. This is why <laughs> the damage is there If we want peace, there's going to have to be a payment. We can't ignore it and we can't pay for it ourselves. What do we need? A payment. Can't come from us. It's got to come from somewhere else. A perfect payment. We need a priest. That's why Melchizedek is a priest, because it points forward to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate priest who can make the payment. That's why we... That's what we have to understand about the cross. On the cross, Jesus was making that payment so that the damage 
between God and his people, their relationship damaged by sin, he's making a payment for that so it can be restored. Okay, and only he can do that because he's perfect. So that's why we have to celebrate and believe that Jesus is our priest. And not only that, but he's eternal. He's an eternal priest. He's always our priest. And so Jesus, as our high priest, is the one who offered himself up on the cross so that things could be made right. And then how do we know things have been made right? God raised him from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead to prove that all who believe in him have been forgiven, have been declared righteous. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done. He has repaired the damage, so between us there is a right relationship. We have his righteousness. And that is how he's also not only the king of righteousness, but he's the king of peace. And when you really believe that God has graciously sent his son, when we even more and more deeply believe that God has graciously sent his son to be our priest and to offer himself up as a sacrifice to pay for our sins... And that has repaired the relationship. We didn't have to pay for it. We get it by grace through faith. So now our relationship with God is right. That's what leads to peace. We can exhale. Because we're not afraid of God. Because we know he's not going to judge us. We're at peace. And that peace then wells up, enables us, and empowers us to, to be loving to others. Because we're not at peace We are at peace with God, so we can be at peace with ourselves. And since we're at peace with ourselves, we can be at peace with others. And it is no small thing to say that the the solution for the whole world is that more and more people get to a place of peace with God through faith in Christ. As Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's why Melchizedek matters. Like I said, we're going to talk about him for a few weeks here. He was a priest to show that Jesus is our ultimate priest who paid the ultimate price. He made the ultimate sacrifice his very life. Because he made that sacrifice on our behalf, he's also, by his name, Melchizedek's name was king of righteousness to show that Jesus would be the true king of righteousness who lived that perfect life, died a sinner's death so that you and I could have his righteousness. And he was the king of Salem or king of peace. Melchizedek was to show that Jesus is the true king of peace because he's our priest and he's given us his righteousness. We can be at peace now and forever. If you're not at peace, run to him, run to the greater Melchizedek, trust him. Even if you're already a believer and you're not at peace about something in your life, what you're ultimately, what's, what it's ultimately coming back down to is whether or not you're right with God. So go and look at our great high priest who has given us his righteousness and feel that peace. It leads your heart to want to worship, which is what we're going to do after I pray. Father, thank you. If there are any here who have never gotten to a place of true peace, through faith in Christ, they've never had that damage repaired by his sacrifice. I pray that today would be the day that they receive the Lord Jesus through repentance and faith. For those of us who do know the Lord Jesus and are not at peace about something in our lives, would you get our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the, the, our true great high priest? Would you help us to feel that righteousness we have for free by grace through faith? Would you help us to be at peace? And would you let the peace that's in us 
Empower us to be a blessing to those around us. And to continue to declare this wonderful news of righteousness and peace with God through faith in Christ all over the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.